Tonight we want to look at Luke chapter 21. We looked at the first part last Lord's Day evening. And we want to look this, this evening from verses really from 5 to 8 of these verses that we read earlier. So if you like, our text will be found in Luke chapter 21, verses 5 to 8. I put it to you that apart from the verses that we looked at last Lord's Day evening, the remaining, the remaining verses from 5 to the end of the chapter really have for us four things. Four things from these verses from 5 to the end of the chapter at verse 38. And the first thing we would notice in our introduction that we have immediate events, things that were going to happen almost immediately. And then from verses 20 to 24, we have the destruction of Jerusalem outlined for us by the Saviour. And then thirdly, we have, again at verse 24, we have the times of the Gentiles mentioned. And then the remaining verses from verse 25 to the end, we really concentrate upon the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a brief, concise view of that chapter, uh, excluding the verses that we looked at last Lord's Day evening. Tonight, as I said, we want to look at these verses 5 to 8. And there are two things that I wish to highlight from these verses for our edification. And we obviously look to the Lord that he might lead us and guide us, that he would help the preacher and that he might help the hearers. And that we might truly rightly divide the word of God. And therefore the two things that we have, the first one is we have destruction. We have destruction. And this came about because from verse 5, And some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts. Here they were. And we know from other gospel records that this was the, the disciples that brought the attention of Christ to the magnificence of the temple. Now, we have to admit here that this is hard for us to get into the mindset of the Jew regarding this building. This building was absolutely magnificent. It was probably the wonder of the world at that particular time. We know that Herod had spent over 40 years refurbishing the temple. Jesus mentions that, and we will quote it later on. This temple was absolutely beautiful. It was truly a wonder of the ancient world. It was regarded as the largest building. It was something that was magnificent to look upon. And the Jews loved it. And they loved it 
not just because of its magnificence, but because there was the presence of God. God was going to be in that building, in the temple. And this was the very center of their worship. This was the highlight of their worship, was to go to the temple where God's presence was assured. And therefore they draw their attention to the Lord Jesus Christ about this magnificent building. The stones were massive, absolutely massive. Some were two to four tons in weight. Some were 15 tons, but some of that stones were regarded as puny compared to some of the other stones that were there. One of the foundational stones was 415 tons in weight. It measured 46 by 10 by 10 feet. It was enormous. And it was, must have been an engineering feat to get it into place. We are meant to understand, friends, that this was no ordinary building. This was indeed magnificent. We cannot use words to describe it. And neither can we use words to describe the veneration and almost the idolatry that was associated with this temple. It was magnificent. This is a poor illustration, I'm sure, but we're not talking about politics here, but, you know, the Houses of Parliament, they are regarded as the, the mother of parliaments. And maybe some people have a, a veneration for that building, but it's nothing in comparison with the veneration that the Jews had for this building that was situated in Jerusalem. And Jesus had just come out of it. And they said to him, look, look at this, look at this splendor. And what does the Lord Jesus Christ say? As for these things which ye behold, the days will come in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. You can just imagine the silence and how their faces would have dropped, how their jaws would have dropped when they heard this from the Savior. What? This building that represents the presence of God is going to be destroyed? These magnificent stones, not one upon another, is going to be left? This is incredible. This was not in their thinking at all. You know, every devout Jew would turn his face towards the temple when praying. Whatever they were, whether it was in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria or indeed in a foreign land, they would turn towards this temple because this is where the presence of God was and this is where he was to be found. And Jesus was saying, it's all going to be destroyed. We mentioned this earlier, but in John chapter 2, the Jews came up to Jesus and said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? What was he doing? He was cleansing the temple. 
And they took offence against this action of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why are you doing this? And they talked about the temple. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou read it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. Jesus was telling them they had to cleanse the temple. They were abusing the temple. By what authority are you doing this? Because one day Jesus said, the temple is going to be destroyed and a new temple is going to be built and it's not going to be made of great large stones. It's going to be the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's telling them and teaching them is they are no longer going to worship in this temple. Instead, their temple will be the Lord Jesus Christ himself and they will look towards Christ. Because in Christ will be the presence of God. Is there anything that we can learn from this, friends? Well, yes, there is. There most certainly is. Why was this temple going to be destroyed? This temple was going to be destroyed because it did not live up to its reputation. Yes, when it was first built, God's presence was there. And the law of God was proclaimed, and the things that God had ordained were carried out. But by the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, this temple was not fit for purpose. It may be magnificent, it may be wonderfully good outwardly, but as far as what was going on inwardly, it was not fit for purpose. You see, friends, there... The gospel, God's word, was not proclaimed. It was a corrupt ministry. And all kinds of things that were going on there that should not have been going on there. And in some real sense, the presence of God had left this place. It was not now fit for purpose. And it was going to be utterly destroyed. God is not interested in buildings. Wherever God's people meet and wherever his word is read and proclaimed, whatever his praise is sung and whatever people gather and offer up prayer in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to our Heavenly Father, that is where God is. And it's not reflected in the magnificence of our buildings or our lack of magnificence. This is what God is looking for. He's looking for spiritual worship. And what what counts to God more than anything is what goes on in the place that we gather. Now that does not mean to say for one moment that we should not have buildings that are fit for purpose. Of course we should. And we should see to make make sure that our buildings are indeed fit for purpose. The minister is one who does not mind if uh, old church buildings are refurbished and they're made modern and made more suitable For the modern taste. I have no problem with that whatsoever. 
But I'll tell you, friends, if the gospel's not proclaimed, and if God's word is not read and proclaimed, there's something far wrong, and it doesn't matter how great the building might be. This is what matters. This is what pleases the living God. When we come together and we worship him in spirit and in truth, that's where the presence of God is. And these people were just taken up with the outward of a beautiful temple. But inwardly, the Lord was not there. And as a result, it was going to be destroyed. And that came to pass. In AD 70, Titus, the Roman governor, he came. And over a period of time, the place, the temple, Jerusalem, was destroyed. Who would possibly believe it? So difficult for us to grasp. But that is exactly what happened. And what Jesus predicted came to pass. Literally came to pass. And it came to pass because the Lord was not worshipped. He was not served in that temple. And the outward physical frame of it would make no difference. It was to be destroyed. The second thing I wish to highlight with you is deception. Deception, because this, once they recovered their composure after hearing that the temple was going to be destroyed, they began to ask two questions. At least, what do we find in verse 7? And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And what shall or what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? And the other gospel records will tell us that they, they ask for the sign of his coming and for the end of the age. And this is the answer that we find in the remaining verses from, on this chapter. But it's interesting, before he gives them an answer, he gives them a warning. And what is the warning? The warning is against deception. Verse 8. And he said, Take heed that ye be not deceived. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. Do not be deceived. Again, history will tell us that before the time when Jerusalem was destroyed, there were many Christs who presented themselves. And many people ran after them and believed them. They didn't heed the warning of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were deceived. I am Christ, and the time draweth near. But Jesus says, Go ye not therefore after them. And if we're ever to uh, look into the great subject of the second coming of the Lord Jesus, this is something that must come before our study. We must heed the warning 
of the Lord Jesus. We must make sure that we're not deceived. And this is what he says to them. And I wonder therefore tonight, before we even look at the great doctrines that are laid before us here concerning the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to ask ourselves and we want to beware and to take heed of this warning that we are not to be deceived. And we're not to be deceived about the second coming, but we're not to be deceived about many other things also. Because this, friends, is the principal weapon that that evil one will use. He will seek to deceive. He will seek to turn people away from the truth. That's what he does. He's a liar and he's the father of lies. This is the evil one and we must be aware of him. He will deceive individuals as he did at this time. And therefore we want to ask ourselves, are we being deceived? And what, which ways does the devil seek to deceive? Because he hasn't changed. His nature is exactly the same. He's out to deceive. So what then are some of the ways that he might seek to deceive you and I? Well, he will certainly cast doubt upon the word of God. Here we are, friends, with this wonderful privilege. We have the Bible. We have God's complete canon of Scripture. It has been given to us by inspiration and by the grace of God. He has preserved it for us so that we have it today. You know, there were people before us who didn't have the word of God in the abundance that we enjoy it today. There were people who went through their believing lives and they didn't have the Old Testament and they didn't have the New Testament. But we do. We do. And it's a great blessing. But the devil will try to tell us the Bible's not true and people will say this to us. Oh, you don't believe the Bible, surely. It's an old book. Oh, well, yes, it is an old book. We're not going to deny that. That's a fact. But it's an old true book. It's God's book. It's God's book that he has given to us. And it's the only book that he has given to us. And it is true. It is true in all that it teaches us. And we are to accept, therefore, what it tells us. This is not man's word. This is not the word of the church. It's the word that has been given to the church. And we are to humble ourselves before it and recognize the authority that's in it. And this authority comes from God because it's God's word. The moment that we cast doubt in the Bible, we're on slippery foundation. The moment that we turn away from this infallible book, it'll be a sad day for us. Yes, we will acknowledge, we will hold our hands up, we will acknowledge that there are things that will surprise us. There will be things in it that we cannot fully grasp or understand. But that should be expected because it's God's book. But we will acknowledge and believe what is taught in God's word. 
but it's all for our edification. It's all for our learning. It's all ultimately to take us to glory. We have it all here, how to be saved and how to live, how to be happy in this world and how to die with this great hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll find it in God's word. Thy word is truth, Jesus says. We might also be deceived when the Bible tells us clearly that we are sinners. Oh, the world doesn't like to hear this. But the Bible tells us these things. It's telling us the truth as it is in Jesus. But the modern mind, am I really a sinner? Is it not true that the Bible is a bit extreme to call me a sinner? I'm not really that bad a person. I may not be perfect, but to call me a sinner? Is that true? Well, if we don't believe the Bible, we are deceiving ourselves. That's all we're doing. And as one John will tell us, the first chapter, if we don't believe God's record about us, we're calling him a liar. We are sinners. Sinners by nature and sinners by practice. We were conceived in sin. That doesn't mean that the biological event was sinful. It doesn't mean that at all. But it simply means that when we were conceived, we inherited original sin. That's what it means. And therefore, we sin because we have a sinful nature. It's not the other way around. And there is a difference we sin because we have that sinful nature. It's not sin that gives us the sinful nature. We sin because we have the sinful nature already. And we inherited from it from our parents. And they in turn inherited from their parents. And we can go all the way right down to Adam and Eve. We are sinners. And because we're sinners... We're in a desperate plight. Oh, you might not think so. I can live my life. I can do so many things. I've got freedom. I've got a free will. I'm all right. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. Because if we're sinners, we're slaves to sin. What does that mean? It means that everything we do is sinful. That does seem a bit extreme, does it not? To say that everything I do is sinful. Everything you do is sinful because it's not perfect. Sin has affected every part of us. It has affected our minds. That's why we cannot understand the word of God as we should. It's affected our, our wills. How has it affected our wills? It's affected our wills because we are, are disobedient to the word of God and to his commandments. The word of God has affected our hearts or our, our emotions. We should love the Lord our God. 
This should be natural to us. Why? Because he has made us and formed us, and he has been good unto us. Good unto all men is the Lord, or all his works his mercy is. And this should inspire and engender love in us towards the, our great God. But the exact opposite happens. We hate the living God by nature. That's why we run away from him. Our hearts, therefore, our emotions are affected by sin. We are sinners, real sinners. And we do not deserve the least of God's mercies. In fact, we deserve his wrath and judgment. This is what the Bible teaches. Don't be deceived. Don't be like those who think there's, there's just something slightly wrong with mankind. And somehow the wrong can be corrected by money, by changing our environment. Nonsense. It cannot. We need a change of heart. We need a change of life. That's what we need. And that's another thing that we find people are deceived about. Do I really need to be born again? Yes, friends, we do need to be born again. You remember that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Who's Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a, a master. Nicodemus was a, a teacher. Nicodemus was a, a noble Pharisee, a deeply religious individual that people looked up to. But Jesus told him he had to be born again. He had to know the new life. And he was a stranger to it. And let, let us not be deceived. What he needed to know, we all need to know. For no one will see the kingdom of God. And no one will enter into the kingdom of God unless they know this experience of being born again. Oh, minister, how can I be born again? Oh, it's a mystery, is it not? The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it goeth, or whither it cometh. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It is mysterious. It's a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit himself. You cannot command it. You cannot demand it. You can ask for it, yes. And the evidence that you have been born again is that you will believe upon the Lord Jesus. You see, friends, here is something that might startle us. You cannot believe upon Jesus in a saving manner unless you're born again. You can't. It's impossible. Oh, you can believe in him, in him as a historical figure. You can believe what the Bible says, but you will not believe in a saving manner unless... You have been born again. Do you believe in Jesus? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? To believe in Jesus means you are trusting him. You're casting your whole soul, everything upon Christ and upon Christ alone. 
like the Apostle Paul said, I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him until that day. What did the Apostle Paul commit unto the Lord Jesus until that day? He committed his soul. He committed everything he had. He committed himself to the Lord Jesus to that great day. What's that great day? That great day is that great day of judgment. Let us not be deceived then, friends. You know, there are atheists who will deceive us, who will try to deceive us. Is there life after death? They'll say, no, no, no. There's no life after death. All we have is today. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Is that what we believe? If that's what we believe, we are being deceived. Because there is life after death, and we know it. How do we know it? Because Jesus suffered and died and rose again. Is there a day of judgment? Again, some people laugh oh, to think there's a day of judgment. Ah, but I tell you, friends, you know, you know this, it's part of your makeup, you know this, there is truly a day of judgment, it's coming, when it will come, I don't know, but it will come, God will have his day, this is the day of grace, there will be a day of judgment. Let us not be deceived, let us not take on the modern spirit of laughing these things off. Is there a place called hell? Surely there's not a place called hell. There is. There is. How do we know? The Bible tells us. Jesus speaks of it clearly and plainly. You know, when we speak about hell, there should be tears. We lament how hard we can be when we speak about these things without tears. Friends, people we know will be in hell. Maybe people here will be in hell. Don't be deceived. Hell is a reality. How do we know? Well, we know from the Bible and we also know as we look at the cross, as we see the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, he was suffering there. He suffered the pains of hell. He didn't go to hell, of course not, but he suffered the pains of hell there in his person. And he's the one, the Son of God, who came with love overflowing from him. He came from heaven to warn us of this place, that we might truly avoid it. Don't be deceived. Is that really not what the devil said to our first parents, 
Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said. Did God really say these things? You, you've kind of got it mixed up. God would never say that, that if you disobeyed, you would die. God is never going to do that. That sounds far too harsh. It's the same thing that's happening today, friends. Don't be deceived. Destruction did come. And before he outlines the end, he reminds them, don't be deceived. That destruction came, just as he said. The end of the world, as we know it, it will come. Let no one deceive you. What must we do? Well, it's clear. Surely it's clear. We are to seek the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to have him as our Lord, as our Savior. We are to have our sins forgiven. We are to be found in Christ, even now, today. Today is the day of salvation. Take heed that you be not deceived. Many people would not come to a place like this and hear these things because they would rather be deceived. We're not here to deceive. We are here to tell the truth as it is in Jesus.